I just finished reading a book that everybody says is the best business book to read. It's called Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. Phil Knight is the guy who created Nike. And a lot of the lessons that you learn in this book are very much inferred. They're not spelled out. The author does summarize a lot of stuff at the end, but to be quite honest, I don't think this is the best business book to read. Welcome to the Become a Media Maven podcast. I am your host, Christina Nicholson. If you are new here, I am a former TV reporter and anchor turned owner of a public relations agency, and I am an avid reader. I love to read fiction, nonfiction, and because this book has so many great reviews, again, people say it's the best business book ever written, I wanted to read it and come back here to the podcast, to the YouTube channel, and let you know what I thought about it. And a lot of this stuff I feel like didn't really relate to me just because this is a product business. We're talking about selling Nikes, started with shoes, then went into apparel, but I don't really understand a lot of the product business structure. I couldn't relate to a lot of it because I run a service-based business. Still, it told a lot of stories about so many hurdles to jump through never giving up, working hard, yada, yada, yada. And this is not like any other book you will read. I find that a lot of business books and a lot of personal development books, they end up being all the same or they end up being so generic that you don't really take anything from them. In this book, obviously, you're not going to get another story like this one because it's the founder of Nike talking about his story. And it is interesting. I love learning and I learned a lot during this, but I don't think I actually took things away that I can implement into my life or into my business. So there's no real lessons here. And Phil Knight did not seem like a very likable guy when he was building Nike. Maybe he's likable now. Right now he's in his mid 80s. I do not know, but he doesn't make himself sound too warm and fuzzy in this book. A couple of times he talked about how he would never respond to employees. Like they would be writing him letters because remember this is 60s, 70s. They would write him letters. He would ignore them. He talked about how he never really showed his gratitude or appreciation for them. He was like a really hardcore guy and didn't seem too likable. At the end, when he talks about what he learned and what he would do different, yada, 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 he does kind of make reference to, I should have responded to that guy's letters. I should have been more appreciative. But while Nike is being built, he seems just like very laser focused and honestly kind of selfish. So that was the takeaway that I got from the author himself. And there were a lot of stories about all of these white men in the bar talking about ideas. Like it just sounded kind of Mad Men-like, I guess. It was very stereotypical of what you would think building a sports apparel business would have been. So what happens in the book? I'm going to summarize this long book. I think I listened to it in like 10 hours or something like that. It all started with a college paper. It all started with this guy's idea 
on these running shoes. And it's because Phil Knight was a runner. He ran at the University of Oregon and he had this idea to make shoes better. So he wrote this paper in college, didn't really think anything of it. I think he got a good grade, but nobody really cared about it. So fast forward, he graduates and him and his friend decide to travel the world. So they start off in Hawaii. His friend meets somebody and just stays in Hawaii. And he goes on to travel the world. And he goes to Japan. And while he's in Japan, he ends up meeting with this shoe manufacturer. So he's like, let me go in there and see if I could get like a deal and I could sell these shoes. So he literally goes in there. He meets with the head of this manufacturing company in Japan, and he reads his paper from when he was in school. He doesn't like pull it out and read it, but he remembers it. And so they're like, great, we'd love to do business with you. What's your company's name? And just off the cuff, he was like, uh, Blue Ribbon, because he had a bunch of blue ribbons in his bedroom at home from racing. So that is how he started selling shoes. He had this company in Japan send him shoes to the United States and he would sell them out of the trunk of his car. He got some money from his dad because he didn't have any money at the time. So his dad was funding Nike at the very beginning and he would go around and start selling shoes out of the back of the car. And then he brought on his co-founder, which just so happened to be his track coach at Oregon. So he met with him. He told him his idea. He said, I'm starting to sell these shoes. I think you're amazing. Like him and his, his track coach in college were really tight. So he started selling these shoes with his track coach and his track coach was very innovative. So he got all of these ideas to make it better. One of the things he did, I guess shoes were pretty flat back in the day. And his coach used a waffle maker to create that sole that now I think almost all shoes, all shoes have where it's like, it looks like a waffle, the bottom of it. So like, that's something that his co-founder, his old track coach did to innovate. Nike was always innovating. And the leader at that time was Adidas. And Adidas was, I guess, kind of afraid to innovate. And I don't think they had a lot of competition until Nike came around. Now there is some drama with that. So stay tuned. I will, I will get into it. So his track coach came on in 1964 as co-founder and they did all kinds of innovative stuff. And then in addition to selling out of the car, they would travel the world and go to track meets. So at first they were very focused on runners because that's what they were. They were runners and they knew the running market and all of that. So lots of work being done there. Like, just think there's no internet. There's no cell phones. Like it's old school, traveling the world, popping the trunk and selling shoes at track meets, which is kind of crazy. Something else that they did that I could relate to and did make sense to me was influencer marketing. They were doing influencer marketing before influencer was a word. And they did it by contacting these people who were big in their space. They were big runners. They later got into other sports, but they started with running and they ended up working with this guy who was the best runner in Oregon. They had a lot of connections just from being in the space. So his name was Steve Prefonte, but everybody called him Pre. And he was an amazing runner. He was like their first brand ambassador. And he unfortunately ended up dying at the young age of 24. He just won a huge race in Oregon. 
And then later that night, he got into a car accident and he came out of his car. The car flipped over on him and crushed him. So he was 24. He died. This was something that really affected the leaders at Nike because they were really close to this guy. He was their first brand ambassador. Later, as Nike became more popular and word of mouth started getting around, Farrah Fawcett wore a pair of shoes in an episode of Charlie's Angels. And that was a big deal because then a lot of those shoes were selling out because Farrah Fawcett was wearing those. So eventually, this Japanese company that they were working with, they started, I I would say, get a little greedy. They started getting a little greedy and they wanted to look for different manufacturers because at this time, the Japanese company and Nike, they had a deal. Like the Japanese company wouldn't sell to anybody else and Nike wouldn't buy from anybody else. But there were some shady things happening behind the scenes. The Japanese company was looking for other people to sell their shoes that they were making, which at the time were called Tigers. I'll tell you why that's kind of cool in a little bit. But the um, the founder of Nike noticed like Japanese company, like some of those people were acting a little funny. So he later found out, well, they're looking for other people to sell the shoes. So that was when Blue Ribbon kind of turned to Nike because he was like, okay, Blue Ribbon's not going to work out. This guy's looking to leave us. We can't break our contract. So we need to make a whole other brand. We need to sell to different people, like get outside of running and do other things as well. So that's how Nike was created. And the way Nike came to be was one of the employees at Nike it came to him in a dream. Like they were wondering like, how, what do we call this new company? And Nike came to him in a dream. Nike in Greek mythology, it means winged goddess of victory. So they just, they weren't in love with it, honestly, but they were like, we have to come up with a name. This is the best thing we have so far. So it'll be Nike. And then the Nike swoosh was created by a female college student who was in school for graphic design She worked about 17 and a half hours on the swoosh and she was paid a grand total of $35 for the Nike swoosh. This was in 1971. Her name's Carolyn Davidson. And she, again, only got a paycheck of $35 for this swoosh. One of the most well-known logos in the world. Now, later in life, she was given some stock in the company, It's estimated to be about a million dollars. And then she was given a diamond ring that was the swoosh. I will link in the show notes of this episode and in the description of this video. So you can read more about Carolyn Davidson. But that's just like, for me, I thought that was the craziest thing. Like it cost $35 to make this swoosh. And the swoosh is supposed to be like the sound that you hear when somebody's running by. Like that's the idea behind the swoosh. Something else that surprised me, and I don't know why this was, Phil Knight doesn't get into it in the story, but they never had money. So even though they were successful at selling all of these shoes, they never had money. He does talk about like the snowball effect of waiting a long time to get the shoes and then selling them. And then they would sell out really quick, but then they had to wait a long time to get the shoes again. Like things just weren't operating like a well-oiled machine. But still, at one point in the book, he says, you know, they're doubling their sales every year. They're making $140 million in revenue, but they have no money in the bank. A lot of the book is him talking about how he had to go from bank to bank 
to get money, to buy more shoes. Like, I don't know where all the money was coming from. Again, I'm not in the product space, so I don't understand the expenses that come with having a product-based business. I know it's more than service-based, but it kind of blew my mind that they're doing 140 million in sales and they still have no money in the bank. Something the leaders at Nike never wanted to do was go public. They did not want to give up any kind of control. They didn't want to answer to shareholders. They didn't want to go public, but because they were always broke, even though they were growing like crazy and super successful, they were still broke. So the only way to make money was to go public. So they ended up going public, but they did something with their shares where they had class A shares and class B shares, which basically meant the founders and the people who were high up in Nike could still keep control because they owned most of the stock. And then the other stock would be sold. It went on the market for $22 a share. Before recording this episode, I looked and it is $125 a share. So something that is Phil Knight, the owner of Nike, he is still married to the woman that he met when Nike was blue ribbon and he hired her to be a bookkeeper. They met and they got married and they are still married today. They had two kids and something else. At the end of the book, he talks about some odd coincidences or different signs. And this was pretty cool. So there was a number, I didn't catch what phone number it was, but he called this phone number a lot. And when you look at the letters on the phone, the last four digits spelled out Nike, which is pretty cool. And then when you look at the numbers, the last four digits ended up being the best time that pre had in racing. And if you remember pre was their good friend and their number one first brand ambassador for Nike. He also mentions that when he traveled the world before Nike was even a thing, he visited the Jordan River. He later had an amazing partnership with Michael Jordan. And he said that Air Jordans took Nike to the next level. The book doesn't talk about what happens with Nike and its growth after it goes public. The story is more so the formation and everything to going public. So you're just kind of left to to figure out what happens, which honestly I liked a little bit better because I don't want to hear a story about a company after they have a whole bunch of money. Because I feel like if a company has a whole bunch of money, it's not hard to make it successful. So I kind of liked going from the start to when they went public and then He also talks about how not only does he have a really close relationship still with Michael Jordan, but also with Tiger Woods. And I mentioned that when he was starting his business, the shoes that were made in Japan were called Tigers. So he had a very close relationship with Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods, again, was a spokesperson for Nike. And then he also, I think he did something with Kobe Bryant. And then there was some kind of mountain or some place that he visited that had the word Kobe in it as well. So he mentioned that. The other thing that's pretty cool is the oldest pair of shoes found in the United States were found the year that Phil Knight was born and also found in Oregon, where he was born and raised, where he started and grew Nike and where Nike's headquarters are today. He also mentioned towards the end of the book, the sweatshop ordeal. I vaguely remember this. I'm not sure when it happened, but it couldn't have been that long ago because I remember it. But it made big news about the sweatshop in China. So 
He later moved from Japan to China. I think actually they have um, manufacturers everywhere. But the news in China was that this factory was operating like a sweatshop. The conditions were terrible. People were being treated terrible. And you only heard about it like it was a Nike factory. So what he said is that it was a factory and there were tons of different apparel businesses operating out of that factory. They kind of just rented space. And Nike was one of those renters. And so because Nike was the name that everybody knew, that was the example that was used in the media. And he said that he reacted emotionally and it probably wasn't the best way to react. But since then, they've done so much and are now known as the standard to strive for when it comes to apparel factories. So some things that Nike's done, apparently the worst room to work in is the rubber room. And it has just a lot of toxic chemicals and the smell and all of the things like it's not a lovely place to be. So Nike being the innovators that they are, they developed a certain kind of water to use in the rubber room, which would make it so much safer and cleaner to work in. And then they just gave it to their competitors. So everybody who creates shoes can have a better environment and it's not as toxic as it used to be. They also tried to pay workers more money overseas. Now, obviously, people get paid differently in different parts of the world. We have different economies, different costs of living, all of that. So he was trying to pay these people making shoes more money. And actually, those governments, he wouldn't say which ones or where this was, but those governments went after him and was like, hey, you are going to ruin our economy if you start paying shoemakers more than medical doctors are getting paid in this country. So he couldn't pay people what he wanted to pay. It had to be on the level of their economy and what was the going rate for that work at that time in that place. So because of all of this, again, Nike is recognized as the standard for apparel factories. And I think the book takes you for about the first 20 years of Nike, it takes them almost 20 years to go public, 15, 20-ish. And during that time, you're just hearing all about these money woes and like how they never have money, but they're successful and they're growing, but they never have money. Again, I couldn't really understand why they never had money. Maybe they were drinking too much at the bar while they were talking about their ideas. I don't know what it was. But today, Phil Knight is worth $35.2 billion. He tells a story about how he was out in Palm Springs with his wife. They saw a movie and they ran into Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and just kind of like shot the shit as a bunch of billionaire men just hanging out in Palm Springs. So that is the synopsis of the book. If you wanted to read it, these aren't spoilers. Like it's just what happened. You'll still enjoy the book because he tells specific stories I honestly, I was debating on giving it a three out of five stars or four stars. I think I would give it three and a half, like right in the middle. One, just because this isn't a rags to riches story. Like Oprah Winfrey, that is a rags to riches story. Like she had everything going against her. This guy was a white man from the United States getting funded by his dad. So again, easier to be successful when you're in that situation he didn't seem like the most likable guy. So that like, you know, is kind of a strike. I appreciated his honesty though. I'm not going to lie. Like if you're not nice, don't pretend to be nice. But 
I feel like, again, I would have liked a little bit more of a lesson throughout the, the book. At the end, he kind of summarizes it, but the lessons are just very generic, like work hard, don't give up, yada, yada. I would have liked to learn specific lessons, maybe at the end of every chapter or like as he's telling stories, like what did you learn and what can I take away from your experience and apply it to my life and my business? That is not what you will get in this book, but you will get the story of how Nike started and how it grew. The book is called Shoe Dog. I will link to it in the show notes on the podcast, the description on YouTube. If you missed it, these podcast episodes are going on YouTube. I'm trying to edit the videos a little nice. So it's not like just laziness putting the podcast on YouTube. So if you want to see some images of what I talk about, be sure to watch YouTube. I'll show you pictures of pre and different things. I'll throw them up here in the YouTube video. And if you haven't already, you know, I love you tapping that subscribe button, whether it be on the podcast or YouTube, I appreciate that. And if you have any book recommendations for me, I love a good book recommendation. I'm always reading at least one fiction and one nonfiction at a time. I don't review every book here on the podcast, but this one was commonly called the best business book you'll ever read. And that's why I wanted to read it. I honestly heard about it and read about it before I picked it up to read it. And I was never interested, but then I saw so many people saying it's the best business book you'll ever read. And I just, I just don't agree. I don't think it's the best business book you'll ever read. Maybe if you're in the business of making shoes, it's the best business book you'll ever read. But even now, like things are just done so differently now in 2023 than they were in the sixties when he started this company. But still, if you like to learn like me, if you love taking a masterclass, you know, like I took the masterclass by Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx. That was fabulous. If she wrote a book, I would read it. Another memoir that I read was by um, Jamie Lima Kern. I think is her name. Kearns, maybe something like that. Jamie Kern Lima is her name. I switched those. And it's called Believe It. And it's called It because she is the founder of It Cosmetics. I read that one. I liked that one. It was a little more on the preachy side, like a lot of like religion in there. But I love that she was a former TV anchor and she had rosacea and she needed something to make her skin better. There's some mean girl stories in that. Obviously, she's in this industry um, in, in beauty with other women. So it's unfortunate, but it's expected. Anyway, that's a great book too. another memoir. I read the memoir by Robert Iger, the CEO of Disney who left and then he came back. That book is fabulous. So is his masterclass. I highly recommend that book. If I had to pick a memoir that I loved the most, it would be his. I've also read Mariah Carey's book. Obviously that's more entertainment. Jessica Simpson's book was fabulous. And then I'm gonna read Prince Harry's. Oddvi. I think I'm going to listen to his because he reads it. I'm a big fan of Prince Harry. Totally believe him and Meghan Markle over William and Kate. I know this is controversial. This may be the most controversial thing that I say all year. <laughs> but I watched the documentary and I'm just on their side. I don't know what to tell you. Okay, before I get anybody too upset, I'm going to go. But thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching if you're on YouTube. And I will catch you again soon here on Become a Media Maven.